Hey everyone, this is John Christensen. I'm the founder and CEO of Highland. Storytelling is one of the most powerful ways to support our families. Life is short and we can only tell those stories while we're here. And so it's important that we're cognizant of the fact that without those stories, our legacy, our history, our values are lost. And it's a great reminder to me and hopefully to you to be proactive and don't delay telling those important stories. My guest today is Dr. Marshall Duke. He's a renowned expert on family storytelling and a professor of psychology at Emory University. His work has been featured on Good Morning America, the New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal. According to Dr. Duke, creating strong family narratives can have such a profound impact. Shared stories build resilience in children, equipping them with the skills needed to navigate challenging times. Telling stories heightens connection and forges powerful bonds. And it's a way for us to meaningfully demonstrate our values to our children and even our grandchildren. The interview you're about to hear was originally created for our Living Fully community during the pandemic. I hope that it inspires you to tell your own family stories, encouraging purposeful values and resilience in the generations to come. Dr. Duke and I discuss why challenges are necessary for growth, different kinds of stories families tell, the importance of rituals and traditions, and when to tell these stories. Let's jump right in. Dr. Duke, it's so great to have you here. I'm, I've been really looking forward to this conversation, and you have a pretty impressive list of accomplishments, notably your work in the development of children's resilience and family rituals. I thought we'd just start out by talking a little bit about how you became interested in this space. The interest that I had uh, and have in resilience really arises out of the fact that I am originally a clinical psychologist. I, I'm an academic clinical psychologist, but I was trained as a clinical psychologist, and my, my early work was uh, with kids and uh, working in families that were under stress. In fact, this was during the Vietnam War, and I spent two years in the military actually working with the families of, of soldiers, all of whom were dealing with stress and needed to be resilient. The interest was really peaked as we moved forward through the latter part of the last century now, goodness, when we went from a place where we believed it was possible to bring children up in situations where they would be relatively protected, wouldn't face the kinds of crises that we currently become all too familiar with in our worlds. And so the goal really of parenting when I was a young parent, when you were a young parent, would be let's raise the kids without crises in their lives. Let's see if it's possible for them to grow without any pain or scary kinds of stuff. This all changed in 2001, 9-11, when suddenly it became clear that we were not going to have life experiences for our kids or for us, which were without the kinds of dramatic stress that that brought about. It just so happened that at that time, I was beginning a project at Emory dealing with families and how modern life had been pulling families apart. We were funded by the Ford Foundation, and they were interested in what kinds of things keep families together. 
in times when mom and dad were both working and kids were going to soccer practice and all sorts of things, there were lots of things pulling families apart. What held them together? And so a colleague of mine, Robin Fivish, and I were studying families, and we had a group of families that we had invited to participate, 40 families, and then comes 9-11. And we had learned an awful lot about these families by this time. And after the dust began to settle, and this is where we began looking at resilience, we said, let's take a look at the families and see which families dealt with this crisis better than others. Which ones seemed to bounce back, rebound? And it turned out, to make a very long story, 11-year story, very short, it turned out that the children who knew the most about the family history were the most resilient. That is, those kids who knew where their grandparents grew up, uh, they knew where mom and dad went to school, how did mom and dad meet, what happened when I was born, all these kinds of things, they were more resilient. Not only that, they were also likely to do better in school, it turned out. They were likely to be more psychologically well-adjusted. All sorts of good things went along with this knowledge of family history. And how do we come to the family stories then associated with resilience? It turns out that the only way that the kids could know the stories of their families was if someone told them. And the way families transmit their history is through stories. Hence, we began studying family stories. That's really interesting. You said a couple of things in there. One was this idea of, of us as parents wanting to create almost a stress-free life for our children. Mm -hmm. And I think what happens as you go up the wealth spectrum, the opportunity to do that grows, or the belief is that we can create this stress-free environment. So I think that's interesting. I'd love you to elaborate on that a little bit as it relates to this work. It's true that those people who are, are blessed with more resources can certainly find ways of sort of insulating the children from things that families who are not so blessed might have difficulty achieving. However, the things that really are the great stressors are not, I think, so easy to insulate against. The virus is not checking the bank accounts right now, although it is true that people who have greater resources are able to get better medical care and to be able to remain in shelter and so on. It's clearly obvious that there are some benefits there, and they need to be used very wisely, obviously. But I think that there is a hope in every parent that we can raise the kids in a way that they feel protected, but yet that they are faced with the kinds of challenges that can help them grow. I don't like what's going on right now any more than anybody else does, but I think it's going to make my grandchildren stronger people. I think it's going to make our families stronger families because we are finding a whole new way of, of relating to one another, oddly, in the absence of one another. So I don't know if you've seen your grandchildren, but I haven't seen my grandchildren in three and a half months, except this way. But there's a strength that comes from dealing with a challenge. And I think that's one of the things that we know about the stories that are most powerful. And those are the stories that relate challenges that arose and challenges that were faced by a family and overcome. So it sounded like then if you tell these family stories, if your research shows that families that tell stories create some ability to navigate these stressors that really money can't avoid, if I hear you mm -hmm. correctly, you can't avoid mm -hmm. those. 
they're happening. The pandemic's happening. So mm-hmm. family stories help us navigate that. What does that do for our kids? What does that actually create in this spectrum of resilience? What do our kids get out of these stories that you've seen in your research? Very good question, John. So let me just use that as a way of getting to what we know about the shape of family stories. It turns out that the stories that families have fall into three general categories. One is a story that is what's called an ascending story. It says, when our parents came to this country, they had nothing and they worked hard and we built and we got better and better and better. This is an ascending family story. There are also some family stories that are descending stories. And that is, for example, my experience was the one I heard from my grandparents was that they had plenty of resources before the depression, because I go back to that far. And then what happened is the depression came along and that depression and 2008 and 1980 and all these other kinds Mm -hmm. of depressions took everything down. So this is a descending family story. But if families really look at the stories that they have, there are both up and down periods in every family story. And what we know is that the third type of story is called the oscillating family story shape. And that's the one which says we've had ups and we've had downs. Now, many families, what we found, tend not to tell the down stories. They say, well, they are depressing. They're sad. They're upsetting. Let's not share those stories. It turns out that those are really important because typically they are followed by a story which says we rose above, we came back, we found ways of overcoming this. And this is what produces the resilience. The resilience, for example, you and I and other people who who are listening probably are resilient if they've lived through economic downturns before. A young person is the first time it ever happened. Oh, my God, it's the end of the world. We're going to say, well, it's going to take 10 years or 15 years, but it's going to be okay because this is what happens. And if we understand that, if we understand that a family story is one which has ups and downs, then if a down occurs, this is where resilience arises because they think back and they say, well, you know, This happened to my grandfather when the business burned down, or this happened to my dad when he lost his job, but we're okay now. And so this oscillating family story turns out to be the most important one to share, that the good times as well as the bad. This is what we think builds resilience because it produces something called an intergenerational self. And what this is, is a feeling in a child that he or she is older than his years or her years. That is, I may be 10 or 20, but I go back 80 years because I know about things that happen to people I am connected to. And what happened to them has affected me. And I am strengthened by the knowledge that people who are part of me and part of my family are able to deal with the kinds of things that I'm being faced with. And that's what builds the resilience from the stories. That's really interesting. A tangent question to that is the scenario where the story isn't, it not only is it not a good one, but mm-hmm. there's real difficulty and maybe pain and broken relationships or things that really are challenging to share. What advice would you give a family that's in that situation? This is a question that we often get asked. The kids know about these kinds of things. And this is when good judgment plays a part. There are some stories that families don't tell until the children are adults. 
we don't just take a little six-year-old and say, let me tell you this terrible story. But, you know, stories arise, it seems to be, as needed. And grandparents are really good at that because they'll be in a situation and a grandchild might say, well, I'm having a problem in English at school. And, you know, and the grandma will say, well, your mother had a problem in, in English and tell the story. And maybe mom didn't overcome that problem. Maybe we just learned to deal with it. Maybe we look for another strength. But yeah, there are stories in every family which didn't come out well. But that's also part of life. And to give kids the impression that every bad thing is overcome is not realistic. We do as much as we can, but there are points in life where our best judgment is that we can't do anything about it. We have to find a way to live with it. And I think that's what's going on right now. To move through it, to give the child a sense that bad stuff happens, first of all, that's what I hear you saying. Bad things happen, stressors Mm -hmm. happen. But we can move through those. And through that, it leads the child to this resilience, self-confidence, self-esteem, all those. Yep, that's exactly right, John. It leads to a sense of strength, to a greater sense of identity, and a a sense of connectedness, which really brings strength. It, It brings this ability to bounce back and to make good judgments and also to take on values that the family considers to be important. Because in every story that we tell, values are actually transmitted. We wouldn't tell the story unless we had the value that we wanted to give through the story. Because stories teach lessons. That's one of the things that I think we we know is that everybody senses that if somebody says to you, let me tell you a story, that they're going to teach us something. Mm -hmm. A good professor, a good minister, a good rabbi, if they're losing the audience, they go, let me tell you a story. (laughs) And everybody, they they look, they focus, because Mm -hmm. we inherently know that there's something that's going to be there to help us through this moment. So this is why I think the stories as the medium, universal, never been a culture that's been found without stories. Every Mm -hmm. culture transmits through the stories. You talked a minute ago about grandparents, and I want to make sure and hit on that. We have some grandparents listening. I'm a grandparent. You know, what is the role grandparents can play in this transmission of family stories differently, maybe, than the parents? Grandparents and grandchildren have unique relationships, like no other relationship. There is a trusting relationship between the grandparent and the grandchild that doesn't exist anywhere else. It's not possible with the child and the parent to have this level of trust and sort of special responsibility. My wife once said that, that we get along with our grandchildren really well because we both have a common enemy. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what happens is that grandparents can sit down with children and they're not disciplinarians They're not the ones who are day-to-day, moment-to-moment, dealing with the little kinds of bickerings and things like that. It's very positive. And grandparents are seen as having some wisdom. And so the grandchildren listen to the grandparents in a way that they don't listen to anybody else. Grandparents also have this capacity to create stories on the spot. As I said, they are usually provided when when they're needed. But we also know about the stories that grandparents tell is that they're not always absolutely true. And and this is true of family stories in general, by the way, that if any of the the people who are in our audience have siblings, they probably know that the stories that they remember from childhood 
are not exactly the same as their brothers and sisters' stories, that very often within a family, there will be different stories about what happened. We know that the family stories are sometimes delivered in fragments, a little bit here, a little bit there. And the little kids put the stories together into a narrative that no one person has told them, but they've created it. So grandparents have a special role. They have resources that sometimes parents don't have. They have judgment that's born of long years. They have wisdom that's born of experience. And so as such, they're in a particularly privileged and special position relative to the grandchildren. And is there a difference between grandfather, grandmother in the role of storytelling? I'm curious about that. Yeah, it's a great question. The anthropologists tell us that it's mostly grandmothers who are what they call the kin keepers. They tell more stories. Every time I say that, after I give a talk about that, grandfathers come up to me and they say, I tell stories. <laughs> it's not just my, my wife or it's not just the grandmother. In fact, both grandparents tell stories. Grandfathers being males, maybe stereotypically might do stuff with the kids, but they'll also mm -hmm. be teaching them things. But you no, know, grandfathers and grandmothers tell tell stories, and they are important sources of them, even though grandmothers tend to be a little bit more likely to be the ones. I do like the part about grandkids where you get to have fun with them, tell them stories, and then give them back. There is something good about handing you them do back give to them parents, back. right? Yeah, uh, here you yes, go. it is. <laughs> In fact, that's part of what, what makes it work, I think, because the grandchildren know also that they're going to be going back. So yeah. it's a special, a unique relationship, absolutely. And grandparents... Thanks to modern medicine, thanks to all sorts of wonderful things that have happened, grandparents are living longer than they did in the past. That means there's longer amounts of time that children have their grandparents. It's not unusual for children up into their 20s and 30s having grandparents. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between family stories and family rituals and how uh, those play into this yeah. research and the work you've done? Wonderful, wonderful question. Rituals are behaviors uh, or things that, that families do over and over and over. And we studied these. We studied family vacations, Thanksgiving vacations, summer vacations, birthday rituals, things like this, which are repeated year after year after year. And it turns out that they're really important because they become touchstones that a family goes through a period of time which is up and down and all kinds of things happening. Kids are in school, dad's at work, mom's at work doing stressful things or pulling them one way and this. And then comes the ritual time. Thanksgiving being the number one American ritual, by the way, although there are lots of religious rituals, the one that is celebrated by most Americans would be Thanksgiving. It becomes a time when everyone comes back together and sits down and sort of gets a sense of where we've come over the past months, weeks, years since we had this ritual before. And the rituals, it turns out, because they are the same from year to year, produce stability in an otherwise chaotic kind of experience. They come together and do the exact same thing. And the kids need it, even though they go, oh, no, that's the, not this again. Uh, mm -hmm. That stuff is really important. When we did the research on Thanksgiving and we interviewed people and said, what about your rituals at Thanksgiving? And, and this family that we met with tears in their eyes said, 
Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Every year we always have the Thanksgiving tuna because they live on the ocean. And the kids were saying, yeah, grandma makes the tuna and we have all these kinds. And it's a Thanksgiving tuna. So it's not so much the content of it. It's the fact that the ritual is what it is from year to year. And those are critically important in any family. They can be silly. They can evolve over time, but they become a thing that is shared by everyone and produces a moment in time when everything seems okay. I hear a lot of people say that, and even in my own life, it's we do this every year when yeah. I catch myself. And my wife and I actually were thinking about what are those rituals in our life that we, without thinking about it, have kind of built into our life. It's really interesting. But for um, somebody who maybe hasn't done that or is just getting this new concept that we need to have some of those. And I think there is a conscious decision. Is it that simple? We're just going to start doing some stuff together and, yeah. and do it all the time. Is yeah. it that simple? In fact, it is because you just have to decide this is going to be something we do from year to year. And it may be a holiday related ritual, maybe a birthday related ritual, but it turns out that the rituals are important and people can invent the rituals. But if you really look carefully as you said, you might find that there are some rituals in your family that already exist, things that are sort of unique to the family, a special kind of dish on Thanksgiving or, or uh, how Christmas is celebrated or how birthdays are celebrated. So these things can be, I think, elaborated. They can be nurtured. And I think they should be. That kids do need these kinds of things. It, it gives them a sense of safety and security and predictability in a world which is not so safe, secure, and predictable. Well, in a lot of ways, you're, uh, at least I found in my own life, and maybe you would agree with this, but uh, when we're doing rituals with our young, very young grandchildren right now, very young, who uh. are maybe too young to hear a story, but by participating in a ritual, they are learning something about the family, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because the rituals that we choose reflect our values. They reflect the things that, that uh, are important to us, not only personally, but to the family as a group. Our family does this sort of thing. Our family does not do this sort of thing. And this is how the values develop. But yeah, with the little ones, you can do things that are repetitive. Goodness, Freud wrote about this a hundred years ago, you know, kids love to do the same thing over and over and over. You know, how many times do we have the little ones, you, you do this crazy thing and they laugh and they laugh and they say, do it again, do it again. Do it again. <laughs> yeah. But I think doing it again turns out to be a healthy thing. Hey, would you talk a little bit about the, do you know questions, the 20 sure. questions? Cause I think that's such a great takeaway, really actionable thing that anybody can do. Absolutely. It turns out that the 20 questions that we used in our research were questions that we generated using a simple set of rules. And that was, if we want to know whether or not children know about their family history, we wanted to ask them things that they could not have known unless somebody told them, because we were looking at the stories. So the kinds of questions that we generated were questions that asked for information that kids could not know based upon their own experience or their own memory. Where did your grandparents grow up? What job did your grandfather have? What school did your mom go to? How did your mom and dad meet? Questions that they could not know, somebody had to tell them. 
So these questions, there's nothing sacred about the 20 that we use, although they're pretty good. They work out really well in our research, and they are available. I think you're going to make it available to all, all the, the folks who are listening. Yeah, we are. You can generate questions that fit the same criteria. That is, things that the kids don't know and could not know unless somebody told them. So it's going to be questions about parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, countries of origin, jobs that people had, things that happened in the history of a family, special moments where weddings took place. Kids like to hear this. And even what I say to, to moms and dads and grandparents is that the kids need to hear it. So if they don't, they say, no, I don't want to hear that. You sit down with me, humor me for a while. Listen to this story. And I also say that when a child knows what you're going to tell them, they know the story and they roll their eyes up. Oh, no, here it comes, the story. Then you can feel like a success. You have achieved your goal. The kids know the stories so well that they can reel them off to you. I was wondering that point you just said. It's not that you just, the kids know these rote answers, that you mm -hmm. take them through these questions once. They have to actually get to a place where they not embody them, but really do remember them. Is that correct? They do. They do. And they will tell those stories later on because the story is so powerful because the children, as they grow, feel responsible for the stories. Like we feel responsible for our parents' stories, that somebody's got to carry them forward. But mm -hmm. the power of the story is also in feeling a responsibility to the story. That is, I have a family that has this history, and not only must I tell other people about this and remember it, but I have to live a life that is responsible to that story. In other words, I need to reflect in my behavior, in what I do, the kind of people who were in my family. And so there's a responsibility for the story, but also a responsibility to the story. And I think that that's also a source of the power for it. The 20 questions... We've had uh, families use them at Thanksgiving, uh, write them on cards or create new questions. Christmas time questions, Passover seders, church services, anywhere people gather together. Family reunions are a wonderful time. Annual family vacations where people ask questions, tell the stories. And the, the questions actually structure the interaction, although the stories will be told sort of naturally. The questions are kind of fun. And parents like asking them and grandparents love hearing the kids answer. Sure. Is there an optimal age for either grandkids or your own kids where learning about family history or family stories? Have you found a sweet spot age where where that's the case? And to the contrary, is there an age when stories become not effective? You know, maybe that's high school. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yes, there seems to be a sweet spot, and it looks like it's somewhere between 10 and 14. This is a good time. The kids are still young enough to sit with you and not say, well, I want to go and do other kinds of things. They're old enough to understand the nature of story. They're old enough to appreciate the questions and to appreciate the answers. This is not hard and fast because different stories, as I said before, need to be told at different times. So there are some stories that await adulthood. In my religious tradition, which is Judaism, there are certain books that you don't read till you're 40. People are not old enough. So I think this is true in lots of places where in a family, there are certain things that will be brought up when a child goes off to college. 
-hmm. There are things that are said when a child goes to college that have maybe not been said before. They won't be said again, but they are attached to one of the most powerful moments in a child's life. And to say, listen, sit down. You're about to go off to college means you're starting the next part of your life. I need to tell you some things. It's not heavy, deep, terrible stuff, but the kinds of things that you want to stick. And if you want something to stick, you connect it to something really powerful. Is there a right place, an ideal setting to tell family stories? There are probably better settings than others. I think right now is a good time because families are together. Mm -hmm. But usually it's a time when people are not being pulled apart by other kinds of things. This is why family vacations are good, I think, for that. Mm -hmm. Holidays are good because everybody is sort of there. In the middle of a crisis, I think it's probably a time to do a first telling of a family story because when, when we talk about things in the middle of a crisis, they help in the moment, but they don't last. In other words, you have to go back mm-hmm. and tell it again when people are calm. Mm-hmm. And this is probably a good rule to follow in general is that, you know, when people are upset, they say things, then you go back and redo it. Let's right. retake that one. Right. And, do and, over. And, and that's right. It's a do over, but we're calm. And I think that with what's going on right now, and this happened after 9-11, but right now we have a fresher experience of it. I think that this is a moment that we'll revisit. We're in the middle of it now, and we're sort of watching it happen, and we don't know what's going to come out of it. Mm -hmm. But I think we need to be talking about it with the kids, and then hopefully when we find some way to move through this, we can go back and sit down and say what happened, because that is going to be in the, in the lives of every one of our children and, and grandchildren. And they'll tell the story about it. Can talking to your kids about their money history, so mm-hmm. the role the money played in the home growing up, maybe the, the mistakes we've made around money, or even the good things that have happened around money, are those right. part of this storytelling that creates and is beneficial to a child's security as well as their resilience? I definitely believe it is. I remember when I was in graduate school, when they talked about most common words used in the English language on a daily basis, money is close to the top. Yeah. It's, it's among the most commonly used words in our language, which shows us how central it is to the way we live. For sure. If we want to, uh, for example, teach our grandchildren how money needs to be used or looked at or what it can get for you and what it can't, Mm -hmm. I think there's something that we can actually sit down and tell some stories about. I know that in the life of most families, there are periods of time when things were more stressful financially. And for many people right now is that time. Right. And we're seeing families being pressed that were not pressed before. We're seeing people losing their jobs who had no sense that they possibly ever could. I think that we teach stories through actually three methods. One is words. What do we say about what's going on and what happened? And the second is what do we do? The kids learn an awful lot from watching what we're doing. Mm -hmm. So if they see us saying, I need to be sure we give to a certain charity right now, or there's a place that I want to be sure is okay, even though I can't go to it right now. I want to keep paying my bill. Or there's somebody comes to our house who works in our house, but can't come to our house. I want to pay that person. These are behaviors. No, you don't have to say, watch me, because they are watching. The third way is through imagination. That is the kid's imagination. They imagine how we use what resources we have. 
and they create a story about what kinds of people that we are. And I think that one of the things that's really critically important in terms of how kids deal with money and how they deal with resources is to realize that there are differences in ways families do this. And there are families who take this very, very seriously and who seem to know how to do it. I don't know how to do anything with money. <laughs> My children know that. But I have a wonderful advisor. <laughs> who makes sure that we're okay. And I think my, my children appreciate him immensely. So, <laughs> so I think that the message needs to be, this is one of the things that we as a family have a value about. And mm -hmm. what is our responsibility to ourselves as a family, to the generations to come? Who did something for us? My wife wears a, a diamond ring that my grandfather saved during the, uh, the Depression in the 1929. He lost all this, except he saved three diamonds. <laughs> mm. So all three of those diamonds still exist in my family. And my daughter-in-law has one and my wife has one. And my daughter has one. And that's a family story now, right? That's it is, a, it is a family story, but essentially it is a message. I think that's a wonderful thing to look at as a family is what do we have that has come to us because someone before us made a decision or dealt with a situation that was really a difficult decision or even a, a stressful financial decision. We owe that to them who did that, and we owe it to the people of the future. And I, I think that's a generational difference. You probably know this better than I, that generations differ in what they see about the way in which their money might be used. And we know this from some of the stories that we've heard, is that older generations tend to be uh, more like almond tree planters, you know, like I'll plant this and I won't see the fruit of it, but I'm going to do it. Yeah. And younger people tend to want to see the results more quickly. And there may be a generational difference, just an age difference. Right. But I had a, a person who talked to me about this once and said that he felt the younger people are like radish growers, you know, that they, <laughs> <laughs> they want to plant the radish and 23 days later, it's there, you know. So it's a difference of age, difference of philosophy, but I think it's critically important for financial values to be transmitted as well as ethical values. And not that those are different, but mm -hmm. you can emphasize one aspect versus another. Yeah, it can be super easy with money to not talk about it because of any number of things. Uh -huh. You know, we're shameful, guilt, don't feel like kids are old enough. So it might be an area that you could talk about values as it relates to money, as you've talked about. But also, as the kids get older, that is a family story that you can start to talk about. That is one conversation that an older child can grasp. Yes, and it certainly is a conversation as they get older. As the kids get older and they have children themselves, they begin thinking in ways that you have been thinking about them. It's both obvious and profound, but you say, how do you, you know, what makes you a father is having a kid. And, <laughs> you know, why do you behave the way you do? It's because I have you. <laughs> I guess that explains lots of things for me. Well, that statement right it, actually there. <laughs> it actually does. It actually does. But then you begin thinking, you see, you know, it's something that arises when we have a child, when we have grandchildren, we begin thinking about this. What about this? What is the long term impact of what I've done? And how are they going to be affected by the decisions that I make? 
ethically, morally, but financially especially. This is a decision that goes forward well beyond our time here. Yeah, I appreciate all the comments that you've shared. It's been really interesting. I wanted to open it up for some of the questions we are getting in the chat sure. room, which I think sure. is really interesting. So I want to turn to, to at least a couple of those. But one of them is, are there any don'ts with telling family stories? There are don'ts, and I use the tummy test, you know. If it's in your stomach, it says, this is not a, a thing that I want to share with a child. It could be, you know, a horrible tragedy that in truth will be upsetting to know about. And you choose not to transmit that. We know that there are family secrets. Every family has secrets. We know that. And we also know that there are generational secrets which a generation will not tell the next generation. It's sort of like an unspoken agreement. An example, my mother-in-law, was when she passed away, was 99 years and 10 months old. And when she was 95, she was sitting in our house. She was beginning to lose some of her faculties, but still was pretty sharp. Mm -hmm. And she was the last of eight children in her family in that generation. And she was sitting uh, at a table and my wife was washing up something in the sink. And my mother-in-law said, yeah, I've been thinking about Uncle Max's first wife. And my wife just dropped whatever. She says, what do you mean Uncle Max's first wife? And it turns out that Uncle Max had been married for about four months to someone that was not considered to be okay by the family. And no one had ever mentioned it to any of the cousins of their children. This was going to be a secret, just didn't go on, didn't move forward. It's an embarrassment to the family, apparently. Right. So are there things you shouldn't say to the kids? Yes, you need to use good judgment. Mm -hmm. But things like hard times, downturns, bad decisions, human kinds of things. But, you know, the thing that's so uh, you know, unusual or rare or or just so devastating that you don't think it has any value in terms of teaching a lesson. I think that's okay not to tell. I wouldn't just yeah. go and say, let's tell them everything because that's important. I think good judgment always prevails. How about this philosophy as it relates to children that are adopted or maybe children that live in a single parent household? How, how do you play that out? Yes, we can transmit stories to the adopted kids. That is, whatever story belongs to our family as the adoptive family. I have two biological children and one adopted child. So I, I sort of have this firsthand. But what we can do is we can transmit the story of our family to the adopted child, and it becomes his or her story as well. And now, sometimes the adopted child wants also to, to know what happened to biological family, and that's okay. They can find that out and have that story as well. Any of us who've gone to a college know that you can have a story given to you, like you can be at the college for four years, but you've got the whole history of the college that belongs to you as well. The stories are transferable. Single parent, you've got just one basic family story you're dealing with, or one that's focused on or emphasized. For sure, that's the one that we go with, and we transmit that one. Same thing with blended families. Hmm. The more stories, the better. The more lessons that are there, the greater richness of the family identity. 
Very interesting. I'm going to throw this one in for myself because I, I, I saw you speak about this various topics of wellness, health, uh-huh. wellness, ethical, intellectual, spiritual wellness, something that's akin to what I talk about a little bit in this idea of a life portfolio. This idea of kind of we're more than just one thing in our lives. And you talk about that in a little different way because I use it through a, a money lens. But I was particularly interested in your view of relational wellness as opposed to these other, you know, physical or, or whatnot yeah, wellnesses yeah. and the importance okay. of that one in particular. I, I'm curious about that. Relational wellness. In a nutshell, all the research that's been done longitudinally, that is over the lifetime of individuals starting back in the 1920s, there are a number of long-term studies. There's one done in Canada with a group of nuns. There's a study done at Harvard called the Harvard Men's Study, which has followed people across their entire lives from the time they were in their early or mid-teens until they passed away, many of them were into well into old age. The single best predictor of happiness in old age is relational, the quality of relationships. There is nothing more powerful in terms of, of living a contented life a life filled with good things than having solid relationships. Now, the relationships are with people mostly, but they can also be with places. They can be with music. They could be with paintings. Relationships, in other words, connections, are very broadly defined. But relational wellness is critical because in relationships, we find the solutions to most of the difficulties that we face in life. Even if the life experiences are stressful and troubling, if there's another person or other people that we can talk with, then that really is a healing kind of experience. And this is one of the things that people are missing most right now, I think, and that is being in connection with other people. Is Zoom the same? No, no, it's not. No, it's not. It's (laughs) it's just not. It's not. So, so what I find myself doing, I have a very good friend and we usually sit with one another a couple of times a week and just have a cup of coffee. Well, we're sitting in parking lots at the local Target, like two police cars, you know, <laughs> and we're six feet apart. He has a cup of coffee and I do, but he's alive. He's there. I can mm-hmm. see him. I, and there's something about that, that that is really critical. And so we do know from research, long-term research that if we come down to prioritizing things in our lives, the relational component needs to be really critical. And women are better at that than men, by the way. Women will focus on a relationship, the exclusion of other kinds of things, easier than men do. But men, I think, also build relationships that are lifelong and supportive. So the relational wellness is, I'm I'm really pleased and, and touched that you picked that up because that's there's such an important component in terms of my work as a clinical psychologist. The most healing thing that I have is a relationship with another person. Mm-hmm. As people will sometimes say, you know, what makes people get better in psychotherapy? It may be what you say to one another, but it, more often than not, it's just this person that you're with who is connecting to you. And that that makes you better. Well, and I think it's what COVID has maybe taught us all is that these relationships are so valuable to us. And maybe we took that for granted a little bit. And Facebook, Instagram, pick your social media platform. Now Zoom isn't the same. Yeah. You know, it, it really isn't the same. And we've, we realized maybe the importance of that in a very different way. I couldn't say it better. It's absolutely true.
And I think what we'll find is that when this eases up a bit, we're going to try and get back to being with other people as quickly as we can. And this is okay. In 1918, they didn't have Zoom. Same kind of thing was going on in the pandemic back then. But we've got Zoom. You can see people's faces. I can see my grandchildren, but it's not the same. Well, I appreciate you joining me. It's been really a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you. That was a wonderful conversation with you. I appreciate your questions and and your interest. Thanks for taking the time to listen to my conversation with Dr. Marshall Duke. Hopefully you're inspired to share your own stories with your children that will create lasting benefits for your family. If you need a place to get started, check out the 20 questions in our show notes that will help you tell your family stories. Thanks again for listening. Now go live fully. This episode was produced by Anna McLean. Hightower Advisors LLC is an SEC registered investment advisor. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities LLC, member FINRA SIPC.